1982, the body of a woman was found near Lake Tahoe. The case grew ice cold, but genetic genealogy would not just find her identity, but that of her killer as well. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to day four of 12 Days of Crime Lines, 12 daily episodes as a thank you to my listeners for a full year of support. I thought about doing cases this year that were all unsolved. Those are often ones that don't have a lot of information, but also need the most publicity to help solve them. This case is solved, but I wanted to cover it because it shows that there is hope that a very cold case can be solved. And it's worth exploring how that happened to see if it could happen in other cases. I was on Twitter a while ago and Sarah Turney, the sister of missing teen Alyssa Turney, tweeted something about how it is hurtful to families to hear commentary on podcasts about their loved ones' cases that say something like, oh, this one can't be solved, or I don't see this one ever getting solved. I know I've said it before, and I'm really thankful that Sarah has expressed her point of view on this because I did not process how families of victims were hearing this. They have hope for answers and justice, and if they don't have that, what do they have? So who am I, some woman sitting in her basement talking about true crime, to evaluate these cases like that and say they shouldn't have hope or this one won't ever be solved? So when I came across this quote-unquote unsolvable case that ended up getting solved, I knew I needed to cover it. Known for years as the Sheep's Flat Jane Doe, the victim has been identified as Mary Silvani. Her killer was named and her case officially closed, all thanks to genetic genealogy. This case started on July 17, 1982, Hikers were passing through Sheep's Flat in Washoe County, Nevada, and this area is along the Mount Rose Highway. It's a very popular recreational site, particularly for hiking. Several hundred yards from Mount Rose Highway, the hikers saw a woman slumped over a log. She was dead, having been shot in the back of her head. Investigators said it looked like she had been shot while bending over, possibly to tie her shoe. She had not been dead for any more than 24 hours. The woman was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Underneath that, she was wearing a bathing suit, and because this was near Lake Tahoe, it was possible she had plans to be at the lake that day. What the woman didn't have was any identification. Her clothing was fairly nondescript, mass-produced, inexpensive items. So the job became twofold, find out who she was and then find out who killed her. Unfortunately, it would not be so easy. Even after publicizing the woman's description, which put her between 25 and 35 years old, 5 foot 5 and 112 pounds, they had no one come forward. They checked missing persons reports in the area and outside of it, as well as checked with nearby casinos to see if they had any employees go missing. None of these leads panned out. They did discover on autopsy that the woman did have a child, 
She had given birth at least once, as evidenced by a C-section scar. They tried to figure out where her clothes had come from, hoping that that might point them in some direction, but they didn't really help. Like I said, they were mass-produced items. Her pants were Lee brand jeans, which are sold all over the U.S., and the shirt she was wearing was sold only in Washington, Oregon, and California. She was found in Nevada, but just miles from the border of California, so she could have bought it there while not actually living there. So this wasn't a huge help. Her dental work initially looked like it was going to give a few more clues. She had unusual but extensive dental work, including a porcelain three-tooth gold bridge, as well as various fillings and crowns. She did have a few uneven teeth, so it didn't look like she had orthodontia. The style of her older dental work was more common in Europe, so either she had it there or possibly it was done by a dentist who was trained in Europe. Apparently, it was not uncommon in Canada either, so that was another possibility. This dental work was high quality. However, it looked like it had been years since she had any of the expensive care done. So what it looked like was that she had been middle class in her early years and into her teens, but then fell on hard times as an adult. She did have what looked like a vaccination scar on her arm that was consistent with inoculations given in some European countries. I saw Germany being mentioned specifically. Between that and her dental work, it was thought to be a possibility that she was a tourist from another country or she was an immigrant to the United States. The investigators followed up on all of these possibilities. They didn't deem this case too hard and file it away. They were in contact with the State Department to send the woman's description overseas They checked immigration records, and they had been in contact with the RCMP up in Canada as well. If she was from another country, she may have been estranged from her family or maybe just not in regular contact due to the distance, and that was why no one had reported her missing. With no family coming forward to claim her, she was buried at the expense of the county, According to the Reno Gazette, which was reporting on the case pretty regularly in the early days, the only people present at the burial at Our Mother of Sorrows Catholic Cemetery were the gravediggers. The Bishop of the Universal Life Church of God in Reno heard about the burial afterwards, and he was disturbed that nothing more was done. Even if they didn't know the woman as anything other than the sheep's flat Jane Doe, she deserved a true memorial service. So he organized one. He told the Reno Gazette that the night before the service, he received a threatening telephone call. The caller asked if he was doing the memorial service, and he said yes. He was then told if he went through with it, he would be dead. Not knowing if the call was a crank call or a genuine threat, he decided to go forward with the service anyway. And it was attended by others who had also thought it was sad that the burial was unattended. 
Over the years, the police would compare her information, dental records, fingerprints, and eventually DNA, to hundreds of missing women from around the U.S. who matched her description. They would eventually send the information to Interpol and Scotland Yard. At one point, they brought in a psychic to try to help, but the information wasn't useful. This case, while it wasn't always being actively worked on, was never far from the investigators' minds. And as the original investigators retired, the case was passed on to others interested in solving it. In 2000, it was announced that they had a complete DNA profile of the killer, thanks to the sexual assault forensic exam that was done at the time of autopsy. So they had her DNA and her killer's. In 2014, the Washoe County Sheriff's Office started a cold case unit, and a year later, they picked up the Sheep's Flat Jane Doe case. Looking over the information and doing some new dental analysis, this new detective came to believe that she was not from Europe and that she had been born in the United States. It was likely she was out of touch with her family at the time of her death, which is why she wasn't reported missing. So he went public asking people to think back a little farther than 1982. Don't think about a cousin or an aunt or a niece who went missing in 1982, but rather one who stopped contact in the late 1970s, early 1980s instead. But the real break in this case came in February 2018 when the county sent some investigators to the American Academy of Forensic Science conference held in Seattle. Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, the founder of the DNA Doe Project, gave a presentation on genetic genealogy. This was just a couple of months before the arrest of the Golden State Killer. When the investigators heard this presentation, they immediately thought of the sheep's flat Jane Doe, because they had her DNA and the DNA of who they believed to be her killer. Surely this method could help solve both questions in this case. They asked the DNA Doe Project for help, and they agreed to work on the case starting in April 2018, the same month Joseph James D'Angelo was identified as the Golden State Killer. The genealogist took the Jane Doe's DNA and uploaded it into GEDmatch. GEDmatch results led them to a cousin and eventually to the Silvani family in Detroit, Michigan. They believed the Jane Doe may be the daughter of John and Blanche Silvani, who were both deceased. But then they connected with an older relative who told them that John and Blanche had two daughters and one son. That threw a bit of a wrench into things because they had built out a family tree which showed that John and Blanche only had one daughter, Mary Silvani. Maybe they were out on the wrong branch of the family tree. Maybe they had the wrong Mary Silvani. If you've ever done your family history before, you know that one vital record might lead you to a name, but then you get on the path of the wrong person with that name and it throws you off entirely. 
But they managed to track down a few more people who knew the couple and learned that the older relative was remembering incorrectly the details of the family members that she hadn't seen in 40 years. The family actually had one daughter and two sons. At this point, Mary's parents and both of her brothers were dead. Her brother Charles took his own life just three months after Mary's body had been found. It was later announced that Charles and a friend of his were suspects in an earlier murder, and this friend would go on to be charged and convicted in that crime. Her brother Robert had moved to California in the early 1970s with the hopes of becoming an actor. He died in 2013. The DNA Doe Project team tried to get a photo of him for comparison to the Jane Doe to see if there was a resemblance. But out of Robert's 15 credits on IMDb, all 15 of them were for pornographic films. To see what he looked like required watching those movies. The New York Times quoted the team member assigned to this task as saying it was difficult because the actors rarely looked at the camera. With what appeared like all of Mary Silvani's close family members deceased, they had another hope at confirming the identification. Mary had been arrested in 1974 in Detroit for loitering. It was a minor charge, but she was fingerprinted. They asked the Detroit police if they might, by chance, still have that fingerprint card. This was a huge maybe. There really was no reason for them to have kept that card, since it was so long ago and for such a minor crime. So many documents get tossed out either for the sake of space or especially when records became digitized. If that record was not set to be digitized, it would get tossed. But they went out to the warehouse where all the old paper records were being stored for archival purposes and managed to find it. The fingerprints were a match. Then they found out that Mary's brother, Robert, had a son before he left Michigan for California. His son was four years old when he left and never saw him again. They found the son on Facebook and asked him if he was willing to provide his DNA for comparison. He was willing, and I really wonder what it was like to have no contact with his father or his father's family for the majority of his life and then be contacted because of an involvement with a murder investigation. The prints and the DNA both confirmed that the sheep's flat Jane Doe was Mary Silvani. Mary was born in Pontiac, Michigan on September 29, 1948, and grew up in Detroit. She loved art, regularly visiting the Detroit Institute of the Arts and trying to convince her friends to go with her. Mary and her brothers were primarily raised by their father, John, after their mother, Blanche, left when Mary was just a little girl. Blanche battled with her mental health, and it seems like she was in and out of hospitals. Mary attended McKenzie High School, and at the age of 16, her father, John, died, leaving Mary with no relatives except for her brothers in Michigan. With nowhere locally to go, an aunt from New York went to Michigan to pick all three of the Silvani kids up and move them to New York. But this move didn't stick. 
All three of them wanted to go back to Michigan, and the boys pushed for Mary to be allowed to go back so she could finish high school with her friends. It's not clear if she did graduate, but she did return to Michigan without much supervision. How things worked out at a home with no parents wasn't something Mary talked to her friends about. In 1972, Mary found out she was pregnant. Though she was in her 20s, she was unmarried, so she moved to a home for unmarried mothers with the intention of placing the baby for adoption. Her friend told the Detroit Free Press about the last time she talked to Mary. She had just had her baby and called to talk about her heartbreak over the adoption. Though it was a closed adoption and she wouldn't have contact with the adoptive family, Mary was told she could have access to pictures of the baby through the agency. That was some consolation, though not much. After that, Mary dropped out of touch with a lot of her high school friends, though we know she was in Detroit as late as 1974 because she got arrested for loitering. It was at some point after this that she moved to California, but from what has been made public, it doesn't seem like anyone knows exactly when. Finding people who knew Mary after she left Michigan was difficult, if not impossible. At the time Mary was murdered in 1982, she was 33 years old. Though the investigators had found most of this information over the course of 2018, they held back most of it, just saying they had a tentative ID. They were still tracking down the killer and they really didn't want to tip him off that they had ID'd his victim. The search for the killer took a little longer due to an issue of paternity. They tracked the killer's ancestry and narrowed down to a couple in Texas that had three sons. Based on the DNA, this couple would have been the paternal grandparents of the killer, and they only had one grandson. However, he was ruled out. But like the Angie Dodge case that we covered last month, they knew at this point that they were likely looking for a grandson no one knew about or didn't have contact with. And this is what I really like about this genetic genealogy. The DNA only gets them so far, and then the genealogists have to start investigating. Just like how Mary Silvani's relative thought there were two daughters. The way the genealogists learned the relative was wrong was by pulling property records for the people who lived near the Silvani family as Mary was growing up, calling them up and asking them about the children. In this case, the genealogist did some inquiries and learned that there was a young woman in that neighborhood where this couple raised their sons who got pregnant out of wedlock, and she raised the child under her family name. That child was a boy named James Richard Curry, who had been dead since the 1980s. Reaching out to his children, they agreed to voluntarily give DNA to compare. I imagine it has to be hard to be asked to give your DNA to prove your father was a killer, but in this case, his children already knew he was a murderer. In January 1983, less than a year after Mary's murder, 36-year-old James Curry was arrested for and confessed to the killing of his business rivals, Gerald and Sharon Novoselots, in Santa Clara, California. 
He confessed to killing Gerald at their family home, and then he kidnapped Sharon, raped her, and killed her. He then confessed to also killing Richard Lemon Jr. in Bakersfield, California, and led the police to his body, which was in a storage unit at the place he managed. Though he appeared to be in a confessing mood at this point, he didn't say anything about Mary Silvani. Not long after his confessions, Curry attempted suicide. Though he survived the initial attempt, he did die days later as a result of the injuries. He was also a suspect in a fourth murder of a co-worker of his, and now his DNA linked him to the murder of Mary Silvani. With her killer dead on May 7, 2019, her identity, along with James Richard Curry's, were announced. The case was considered closed 37 years after Mary's remains were found. And with the closing of this case, it gives hope to the thousands of other long-term cold cases out there. With the dedication and the resources needed, these cases are solvable. <laughs> 